You are listening to the sermon audio of New Hope Community Church in Canaan, New Hampshire. For more information, visit our website at newhopecommunity.net. Psalm 2 is a psalm that uh, is often familiar to people. The opening sequence of why do the nations rage, why do the peoples plot in vain is something that we hear time and time again in various contexts. But we often don't see that this psalm, which was originally um, written by David, speaking about not only his rise to the throne, but uh, of the troubled times that he faced as king. So we often think of David as kind of the, the golden boy king of Israel, that Saul came along and screwed everything up and David came in and everything was great. But if we look at David's life and especially the end of his reign, it was plagued with civil war. It was plagued by his sons murdering each other, by sexual immorality within his own family. And ultimately, kind of the crowning failure of his reign was the death of his son Absalom, who even though he deserved to die for what he had done, David kind of locked himself in a room and mourned it and had to be told to come out and to comfort the people for the tragedies that had happened. Even uh, as his son Solomon began to take the throne, another one of his sons tried to usurp that. Even though it had been made clear that Solomon was to be the rightful heir, David's other sons wanted the throne. And so the violence that David had done throughout his reign and the sin that he committed, particularly in the uh, situation with Bathsheba and Uriah, kind of plagued his legacy. And oftentimes all we think about with David, uh, if we're not careful, is the fact that he committed this adultery with Bathsheba. But nevertheless, God was faithful to the promise that he had made to David. And he retained David on the throne, and he retained Solomon on the throne, and down through the line of Judah, all the way down to Christ himself, who is the uh, faithful son of David, who will sit on the throne eternally. This psalm, as we know, not only speaks of David, but points ultimately to that faithful son of David, who will conquer darkness and defeat evil. When we look at this psalm, we can see three distinct sections. Verses 1 through 3 speak of the worldly opposition to God and to Christ. Verses 4 through 9 speak of the sovereign Lord's perspective on the vanity of human rebellion. And this psalm closes in verses 10 through 12 with an exhortation to the, to the rulers and the nations to submit to the Son and a warning of the dire consequences for failing to do so. When we look closer at this psalm, we see that the psalm unfolds in a prophetic fashion, and it would actually trace the contours of Christ's life and ministry on earth, his ongoing ministry in heaven, and his eternal ministry, which will come in the final day. So we'll begin by looking at Psalm 2, 1 through 3. I'm just going to read it again here to refresh our memories. Why do the nations conspire, and why do the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. So David here is lamenting the fact that all around him are enemies. 
He's lamenting the fact that even the very people, even his people, the people of God, the tribes of Israel plot vainly to uh, circumvent and usurp God's plans. They set themselves up against God himself and against the one that God has appointed for the throne. As I said, they're speaking here in the Psalm. This is speaking of David himself, but in our day, it's no different. The people around us, whether it's individuals or businesses or community groups or governments, they stand opposed to the righteousness that we see in Christ. They stand opposed to the plans that God has. Romans 13 tells us that all governing authorities are appointed and ordained by God to be a terror to evil and to reward the good. But we see in our day that more often than not, the government is a terror to that which is good and rewards that which is evil. I want to briefly just trace through uh, the life of Christ, how this plays out in his earthly ministry. And then we'll offer some reflections on how this plays out in our world. So if you will uh, keep a finger in Psalm 2, but if you'll flip over to Matthew chapter 2, this is a familiar passage for us. Um, it's associated with the nativity, but we don't often read this portion at Christmas time because it's kind of dark and a little bit gruesome. And we're going to start in verse 1. This is the portion we most often hear. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what is written in the prophet. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time and star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. And they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and incense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. We'll take a quick break here to recap that. So we see that these wise men from the East who um, had some sort of knowledge, we're not sure exactly where it comes from. The most likely theory is that these were Jewish exiles who had remained in Babylon after uh, Cyrus sent the people back. And so they had access to the scriptures. They had access to certain levels of knowledge. And so when they saw this star appear in the sky and they knew it was some sort of significant event, they headed to Israel because they knew that's where everything important was going to happen. And so they go, uh, as you would expect, if you're trying to find a king to the royal palace and they encounter Herod. And rather than uh, share in their excitement, Herod, who was a Jewish man who knew the scriptures well enough to know that this wasn't just some baby, rather than join them in worship, he deceives them and plots to kill the child. 
picking back up in verse 13 here. And this is the part that we so often uh, fail to read at Christmas time. It says, when they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so it was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the wise men, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all of the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel is weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. So Herod desires so much to retain the power he has over this tiny postage stamp sized kingdom in the Middle East, right? On the grand scale of things, Israel at this time is nothing. It has no power. It has no wealth. It has nothing. And Herod was so desperate to retain this power, to break off the shackles of God, to claim his own destiny over the prophecy that he was turning to, to figure out where this baby was born. Think of the irony of that. He recognizes that the scriptures are true and he goes to the scriptures to figure out where the child will be born. And he trusts the scriptures enough to send soldiers to kill children based on what the scriptures said. But he missed the fact, he missed Psalm 2 where it says, if he does not kiss the son, that he will be dashed to pieces. He commits atrocious crimes. He murders Children, two years and under. We're probably not talking about a huge number of children, but does it really need to be a huge number of children to be terrible? And it's not just him. It's his soldiers. Nobody stood up to Herod to say, this is wrong. This has to stop. They just did it. Recently, as you know, New York passed a bill which would allow for a child who is presently being born to be murdered moments before leaving the birth canal. When they announced this uh, on the floor of their legislative bodies, the wicked and evil legislators of that state stood up and cheered. And across the country, people celebrated the fact that now we can legally murder our children as they're being born. A few days later, a similar bill was proposed in Virginia. And when pressed on the floor of their legislative body, the, uh, the legislator who was proposing this bill essentially said that a woman could be in the process of giving birth. It, the, the baby could be part of the way out of the birth canal and they could still terminate the pregnancy. And they won't, they won't call it what it is. It's, it's not a baby, it's a pregnancy. Uh, shortly later, the governor of Virginia was on the radio and he was being asked about this idea. And when he pressed, and this is, a, this is a pediatric neurosurgeon, so this is a person who understands the fact that eight inches down the birth canal makes really no difference at that stage of development. Here's what he said. He said, so in this particular example, if a mother is in labor, I can tell you exactly what would happen. The infant would be delivered. The infant would be kept comfortable. The infant would be resuscitated if that's what the mother and the family desired. And then a discussion would ensue between the physicians and the mother. 
Now he's backtracked and said, this isn't what he meant, but I don't see how you can read this and not understand that what he's saying is that they may deliver a live baby, set it on a metal table, and if the mother doesn't want it, they would let it die. And now we gasp at that and we're shocked, but this has been happening in our country for years. It just has happened behind closed doors. And our country, it's finally reached the levels of depravity where this can start to happen in the open. We live in a nation where rulers elected by the people are literally saying that it is okay to take a baby who is born alive and quote, resuscitate it if that is what the mother and the family desire. It is absolutely disgusting and evil. From the murder of infants in Egypt under Pharaoh during Moses' time to the murder of infants in Jesus' time by Herod to the murder of infants today, wicked men have always sought power by slaughtering the helpless and the oppressed. And when the nations rage, it is nearly always the women and children who suffer most. Turn with me to Matthew 26. We're going to read verses 1 through 4. So we know well that there was opposition to Christ during his lifetime. Um, we know that it wasn't just the religious leaders, uh, but the you know when he's in Nazareth, his hometown, they don't like what he has to say, and so they gather together and try to throw him off a cliff. The religious leaders, of course, conspire against him as well. Reading in verse uh, 26, uh, chapter 26, verse 1, when Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, as you know, the Passover is two days away and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they plotted to arrest Jesus in some sly way and kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or there will be riots among the people. So they're not concerned with the fact that they're plotting to overthrow the Lord's anointed or to murder an innocent man. They're concerned that there may be riots. So they have to do this in a clever way. Times don't really change. As terrible as it is to murder a child, as terrible as the sin of abortion is, murdering the righteous son of God is worse. Unless we don't get too puffed up with our pride, we commit sins every day that are cosmic treason against God. Turn over one more chapter to uh, chapter 27, verse 11. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, don't you hear their testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Now it was the governor's custom at the feast to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? For he knew it was out of envy that they had handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, that phrase is important. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man. For I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? Asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. 
What shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? Pilate asked. They all answered him, crucify him. Why, what crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. So we have this scene here where the people, sort of egged on by the chief priests, bring an innocent man before Pilate. Pilate knows he's innocent. Pilate's wife has what may be a prophetic dream telling him that he's innocent. He's astounded by this. The Gospel of John tells us that in some senses he's trying to release Jesus. He wants to release Jesus. But because he too feared losing his power, he too feared the influence that would be lost by doing the right thing. He hands over a man that he knows to be innocent to a mob to die one of the most terrible deaths that you can imagine for literally no just reason. Turn over to Acts 2, 22 through 23. We'll see here that this uh, unjust treatment of God's righteous people doesn't stop with Jesus. This is um, Peter reflecting on uh, the crucifixion of Christ. He says, men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did, um, did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him on the cross. So on one level, we can ask the question, why do the nations rage and why do the people plot in vain? And this passage here tells us because it's the Lord's will to crush the Messiah. This wasn't an accident. But at the same time, God's foreknowledge and his decree does not absolve men of their wickedness. Peter doesn't say, by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, you men with the uh, inability to do otherwise handed him over. He says, you wicked men. He stands in front of this crowd who put the Lord to death and he calls them wicked men. And rather than, um, rather than remain in their wickedness, this crowd turns and follows Christ. But it's not always the case. Flip over one, uh, one more page here to chapter 4, verse 27. So after, um, after the Pentecost sermon and after some time of ministry, we're not sure exactly how long, but not a huge amount of time, Peter and John are coming into the temple and they see a, blind, uh, a crippled man who they heal. And the rulers were so enraged by this that they brought them before the Sanhedrin and they beat them. And after they were released, here's what uh, happens. Peter goes, Peter and John return back to the people and they pray this way. They say, indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. Now, if you look just up the page there, you see that Peter um, cited our passage for the day. So Peter is recognizing that all of these events that had happened during the life of Christ, all these events that are happening in the early church, that they're happening because of the fulfillment of Psalm 2. So flip back to Psalm 2 and we'll move on to the next section here. Now we shouldn't think as some um, some. Christians, in air quotes, think 
that God is sitting up in heaven, wringing his hands and surprised by all of this. Instead, we know that God's perspective on this is one of the sovereign Lord who cannot be thwarted. So starting in verse nine, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. So we know that people set themselves up against the Lord and his anointed. But what appears to be the moments that are our greatest defeats, and this is exemplified by Christ on the cross, the moment of greatest defeat, the lifeless and destroyed man hanging naked and ashamed on a Roman cross, we actually see the most glorious triumph. It's actually in this moment on the cross that the Lord begins to set his anointed one up on Zion as the ruler of all things. The son of David, the second Adam, the one who took on our flesh, lived a righteous life that we could not live, died a scornful death that we all deserved. It was in this moment and in the resurrection that followed that he was begotten of the father as the righteous Davidic king. This fact is attested by the resurrection of the dead. So flip back over to Acts 2. Making sure that you guys get your sword drills in today with the scriptures. Starting in verse 29. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here today. But he was a prophet that knew that God had promised him on oath that he would would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of that fact. Exalted to the right hand of the Father, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies a footstool. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? So when we read in um, Psalm 2, that the decree of the Lord is that uh, he will make the, the figure in the Psalm, he will make him his son and he will be a father to him. It's referring first and foremost, to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? Back in verse 31, seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of Christ. He says, God has raised this Jesus to life. We are all witnesses. He says that this fact attested to them that this Lord, that this Christ is who he said he was. It isn't just the rulers, but the people of the nations themselves that rage against God and his people. So a story um, in the news came to my attention this past week. Many of you are familiar with the ministry of R.C. Sproul, who went home to be with the Lord uh, a little over a year ago. Um, his son, R.C. Sproul Jr., uh, has a sort of sword past. Um, he's had some difficulties, and he's been kind of living a quiet life of repentance as a result of it. But recently, R.C. Sproul Jr., who's a huge baseball fan, 
was hired as a community manager on a baseball forum for the um, for his local baseball team. I think it's the Pirates, but I'm terrible at sports, so I have no idea where that is. Um, and the people of this board were so outraged by the fact that they would hire someone who dared to say that murdering a child was wrong, who dared to affirm biblical standards of sexuality and morality. R.C. Sproul Jr. was hired as a community manager in order to solve some of the problems this, this forum was having. And the people of this forum were regularly going on racist tirades, posting pornographic images and all sorts of other immoral behavior. Yet they had the nerve to cite the fact that he had some sexual indiscretions or potential sexual indiscretions in his past as a reason for him to be fired. So these people who have no problem posting pictures of scantily clad women were outraged at the fact that this man has at one point in the past visited a website that was not appropriate. And he acknowledged it of his own volition. So it's not as though he was hiding it. Second Timothy 3.12 tells us that all who wish to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will face tribulation and persecution. R.C. Sproul Jr. was fired from his post two days after taking it. All because he desired to live a godly life in Christ. He didn't comment about it on the post. He was asked about it and he, I think, skillfully uh, skirted the question and said, I'm not here to talk about religion. I'm here to talk about baseball. My views on abortion don't really have anything to do on whether or not I can report to you the uh, runs batted in or the, uh, the average score of the games last season. They wouldn't have any of it. But beloved, you need to understand this, that God will not be mocked. His plans will not be thwarted. Although currently we live in this now and not yet time where the evil men celebrate the, the murder of helpless infants, both inside and now outside of the womb, and attack every institution which brings stability and prosperity to our society, where the totalitarianism of prevailing corrupt philosophy seeks to silence those who seek righteousness and holiness, God will have the last laugh. God will have the last laugh and Christ will reign with a rod of iron and he will smash all of the puny power brokers and despots like dry desert clay pots and their torment will have no end. Not even the gates of hell will prevail against church or her head, Jesus Christ. Flip back with me to Psalm 2 as we finish out with the final section here. starting in verse 10. Now, this section is an exhortation to the kings and the rulers, but the exhortation applies, obviously, to the people of the nations as well. It says, Therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you be destroyed in your way, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. I want to point out something here that I, I think will be encouraging to us as we go out into our week. So this may seem a little bit out of place, but if you just flip over to me, uh, flip over for me to Joshua chapter one. Joshua 
Joshua chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 9. So this is the beginning of the book of Joshua, obviously. Joshua um, is um, made the new ruler or the new leader of the fledgling nation of Israel as it prepares to come into the promised land, into the land of Canaan. And verse 1 here reads, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all of these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I am about to give to you, to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the great river, the Euphrates, all, uh, all the Hittite country, to the great sea on the west. No one is able to stand up against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land. I swore to their forefathers to give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the laws my servant Moses gave, uh, gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or left and do not, uh, that you may be successful wherever you go. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will, have, you will be prosperous and have success. Have I not commanded you be strong and courageous? Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. What does that last phrase remind you of? For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Sure sounds a lot like what Jesus said to his followers as he prepared to lead them into their conquest. Behold, I am with you even to the end of the age. God already possessed the land of Canaan in the, in the Bible. He already was the sovereign Lord over the land of Canaan, over the land of the Jebusites and the Parasites and the Hittites and all of the other ites. All that was required for the Israelites to go and claim the land was to trust the Lord and follow his commands. Matthew 28, 16 through, seven, uh, through 20, we won't read it for the sake of time. But Matthew 28 is a clear fulfillment and a clear allusion to our passage today. It clearly is referencing the fact that all that the son has to do is ask the father and the nations will be granted to him as his inheritance. And now he tells us to go out into those nations and claim that inheritance just as the Lord commanded the Israelites to go into the land of Canaan and to claim it for his name, that he would go before them and that he would drive out their enemies and that they would have success and prosper as long as they were faithful to obey the words of the law that he had given them. The father has promised the son in eternity past and confirmed this promise by his resurrection that if he asks for the nations, they will surely be granted to him. Joshua was promised that Yahweh would be with him wherever he went. We are promised by the true and better Joshua, the Messiah, Yahweh with us, that he will be with us until the end of the age. And through us, he will claim his inheritance as we conquer our Canaan in his name. Beloved, are you living a life that you can say is strong and courageous? Can you say that you are fearlessly marching into the darkness of our Canaan? That you're seeking to take that which is already the Lord's? Now, at this point, I'm preaching to myself. 
because I'm, I'm no better uh, than anyone in terms of sharing my faith. I take the opportunities that I see, but I don't work hard to make opportunities for, for the gospel. And I need to. We all need to. Some of us are better than others. Some of us are great at it. But can we really say that we are doing everything that we can? Can we really say we're being faithful to the Lord's command to go and make disciples of all nations? Can we say that? I can't say that. We have to be better at understanding that the victory is already the Lord's. The land is already ours. We don't have to fight for it. We just have to go, right? They just marched around Jericho. They just did an ordinary thing. They walked. They walked around Jericho. They were obedient to the Lord and the Lord gave them the land. Sometimes God expects us to use strategy. Sometimes he expects us to put forward effort. It's not always the case that the perfect witnessing opportunity lands in our lap. Sometimes, but not always, probably not usually. Just a few chapters later in Joshua, they have to set up this elaborate ambush, right? Sometimes they fail, but they fail because they're not faithful to God's commands. They're not obedient to what he has directed them to do. Immediately after this, they fail because uh, one of the Israelites took something that he shouldn't have. The Lord commanded them to devote the entire place except for Rahab and her family to destruction. And their greed overcame that. So the entire nation of Israel suffered the consequences. There's a community aspect to this. If one of us is great at sharing our faith, that's good. But we also have to be aware that if one of us is being disobedient, that affects us all as well. But the good news of Jesus Christ is that we are under his grace, that he has done everything that is necessary for us to succeed. He has given us every resource and every ability that we need. And we can know with certainty because his word has told us, his inspired, infallible, and inerrant word has told us that he will be with us even to the end of the age. What a glorious hope. Let's pray. Father, we know that you have called us to march victoriously into the towns of Canaan and Grafton and Orange, to Enfield and Lebanon and Hanover. Lord, you have promised us that all those who are yours, all those you have chosen to give to your son, all of his sheep will be saved. He will not lose a single one. But we also know that not a single person can come to you unless you draw him to your son, Jesus Christ. And on the last day, Jesus Christ himself will raise us up and we will certainly be saved. Lord, so help us to be faithful covenant servants, to stand before you and say, here I am, Lord, send me. To take heart the words that you have said to us, to be strong and very courageous, to be bold, Help us to go out into our community and not just ask that people repent, but like your apostles in the book of Acts, to command all people everywhere to repent. You're not asking us to serve you. Lord, you are the sovereign Lord of the universe and you command all people everywhere to repent. And for those of us who have already repented and trusted in Jesus Christ, you have commanded us to be your emissaries 
to bring light to a dark place. And Lord, so I, I pray that through this small church that you would bring about a mighty revival in the region, that you would, among the other Bible-believing churches in our area, that you would bring about the salvation of many, and that this would spark a fire that consumes the whole world. Lord, we stand in a long line of missionaries, and we stand in a long line of people who love you and want to see our, our neighborhoods and our towns and our countries saved. Lord, so help us not to be a people that plot against you unwittingly. Lord, even as we are among a nation that rages, we are surrounded by wicked and evil things. We are often silenced in the marketplace and in the society and the culture around us. Lord, but let us never be silent. We do not want the rocks to have to speak in our stead. So open our mouths and loose our tongues and give us the words to say. Amen.